This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 26, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. How consequential will a school choice advocate be as head of the U.S. Department of Education? And should we actually hope that the department not actively promote choice? Should the agency simply get out of the way? The Cato Institute's Neil McCluskey and Jason Bedrick run through the encouraging news for educational freedom today. Betsy DeVos is clearly best known for her sort of philanthropic support of school choice. I mean, she's part of the DeVos family. You know them perhaps from Amway. Um, uh, But what she has done for the vast majority of her time in education has been to support school choice. Some of it has been directly to schools that she likes. A lot of it has been to organizations that support school choice. Um, It's not the case that only school choice has been what her groups have looked at. They've looked at standards and accountability and testing and things like that. But what really defines her, I think, is the support that she's long had for school choice. Yeah, and it's interesting that the media have been creating a narrative about her that is just completely untrue. I mean, in a a supposedly straight news article in the New York Times, the reporter said that she opposed any regulation as too much regulation. That's a direct quote uh, when it comes to school choice. Now, in some sense, I wish that were true, but she is not the libertarian that uh, she is being portrayed as. She has supported all sorts of top-down accountability measures, many of which we here at uh, Cato have opposed. but she is very much in the mainstream of the you know, center right in terms of supporting choice. At the Department of Education, how much can a secretary of education actually do to move the ball down the field on behalf of school choice? I don't know how much she can do. I'm hoping she's not going to try to do too much. I think uh, people on the right should have learned a lot of should have learned not to repeat the mistakes of the Obama administration in terms of pushing things from the federal government. Uh, The the Obama administration just last week, we found out that uh, one of their signature uh, school improvement grants that they put about $7 billion into uh, came up uh, with a big dud. Uh, The federal report uh, found that they actually did not improve test scores, did not improve graduation rates, any of the metrics. And I think Betsy DeVos should learn from that and not try to push school choice or anything else from the feds. Uh, She should mostly uh, concern herself with using the bully pulpit to uh, push uh, for school, advocate for school choice nationwide, but otherwise try to scale back the federal role in education. Yeah, I mean, I'm even concerned about using the bully pulpit because the way we actually evolved into having a Department of Education that has a fair amount of power started with the Reagan administration first campaigned about getting rid of the Department of Education. A lot of senators didn't go for that because they had just gone through a battle that got us the Department of Education. And one of the things that actually drove people to look to Washington for leadership was Bill Bennett, who was the uh, second Secretary of Education for Reagan. And he used the bully pulpit pulpit to great effect to say, our schools are terrible, Uh, we need to, to fix them. And people started to look to Washington for leadership. And once they started doing that, then it was not a long trip to say, okay, well, now we're going to start attaching requirements to the funding that we're supplying you. The good news is the Obama administration went so far beyond what's constitutionally authorized, not just with programs, but the the secretary himself 
dictating policy that we now have something called the Every Student Succeeds Act passed in late 2015 that sort of on a very broad bipartisan basis said the federal government is too involved. And so we're, we're actually sort of trending in the right direction. So I'd rather that, that Betsy DeVos, if she's confirmed, not even use the bully pulpit. But the real danger is not what she can do personally. It's that the Trump campaign promised to very quickly spend $20 billion in some way or another to incentivize choice. Now, we haven't gotten any fleshed out details on what that means, but it's not really that she's going to drive the train on that. It's if her boss, Donald Trump, says, we want to do something big right now. And then she'll be the person who's going to be sort of make the day-to-day -day arguments. But we shouldn't be focusing on, well, she is good or she is bad. It's what policy does her boss want? All right. So uh, the expectation is or the hope is from your perspective is that uh, if nothing else, she might be able to get the federal government a little more out of the way of uh, reforms at uh, state and local levels. Yeah. And in her in her hearing, which she's been sort of broadly pilloried for, but if you actually watch the hearing, it's as big a problem of senators grandstanding and not actually letting her answer as any answers that she gave. But she repeatedly, at least in her rhetoric, was very deferential to state and local governments, saying that most of this she, she might have even said almost all of it, if you gather all of her comments together. This should be something done at the state and local level. And that's very encouraging to hear people saying that. Now, of course, we've heard that sort of thing before, and administrations have done other stuff. But the fact that that was so central to what she was talking about, in fact, she was asked, uh, I think by Senator Alexander, who's the, the chair of the committee, um, whether or not she would try and push school choice to the federal government. She said no. So all that's very encouraging. All right. So it's sort of a, a weird irony here is that you hope that she's not going to be an activist on behalf of, well, things that we might care about, uh, because they, you would argue that the federal government's the wrong vehicle uh, to move uh, educational freedom along. So, uh, Jason, we've talked about this case on a, in a number of different contexts. McCall v. Scott is a case in, in Florida, and, this, and the uh, Supreme Court of Florida has decided not to hear it. What does that mean for Florida? It means that their school choice program, which has been in existence for a decade and a half and serves about 100,000 students, is now safe from legal challenge. Uh, the, court, uh, the lower court found that uh, the plaintiffs, which is the basically a coalition of the teachers union and their allies, did not have standing to sue because they could not show any harm that they actually suffered from the program. Uh, they, they wanted to argue that because the, the program, which is a scholarship tax credit program, which means that uh, donors get a dollar-for-dollar dollar tax credit for giving money to a scholarship organization that helps low-income kids attend the school of their choice. They said, well, when these kids leave, uh, the local schools, the local public schools no longer get the funds that would have gone to those kids, so the schools have less money and therefore we are harmed. Uh, but the court said this is entirely speculative. First of all, you're still getting paid for the kids that are going to the school. Uh, second, we don't know for sure if these kids were going to go to the school or not. Uh, and uh, there are reports showing that for every dollar in revenue that the state loses, as a result of the tax credit, they save $1.44 in terms of expenditures. So the, the state saves money 
you know, it's up, it's the prerogative of the legislature if they want to reinvest in schools or, or reinvest those dollars somewhere else or give it back to the taxpayers. So any harm that they they claim to have suffered is entirely speculative. And so they said, you just don't you don't have standing to sue. These are private dollars that uh, you know when you make a donation and you get a tax deduction, we don't say, oh, well, that's. That's that money right there that was deducted is actually uh, from your taxes is, is public funds. No, nope, those are private funds. Same here with a credit. These are private funds, and so you simply don't have standing to sue. And so the court, uh, the the state supreme court, uh, said that the lower court decision uh, was correct, and that they're not going to hear the suit. And so that uh, case closed. So eerily similar then to Duncan v. New Hampshire in your home state of New Hampshire, in which the state said you don't have standing because the argument that you're making about harm is speculative. One hundred percent. And uh, really, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, had the same decision uh, in 2011, Arizona. Uh, Christian school tuition organization versus Win, uh, same case pretty much, uh, and they said you don't have standing to sue. And in in very clear language, the Supreme Court in that case said uh, until the money enters the treasury, it is not public money. That's right. Until it enters the tax collector's hand, it is not public funds. Uh, and we have a very similar case actually going forward, uh, Gaddy versus Georgia Department of Revenue. Uh, oral arguments were yesterday, and uh, the attorney for the plaintiffs actually admitted, yes, if you strike down this law as unconstitutional, uh, which means if, if you strike down giving a scholarship organization a donation that could then go to parents that could possibly use that money at a religious school uh, under the state's Blaine Amendment, which says that uh, you can't publicly fund religious education, then certainly making a direct donation to a religious school and getting a tax deduction uh, or giving a property tax exemption to that school would also have to be ruled unconstitutional. That is something that the court is very unlikely to do. And so I anticipate that the state Supreme Court in Georgia is going to rule just as the state Supreme Courts in Florida and Arizona and New Hampshire and the U.S. Supreme Court have done and say, uh, this is a constitutional program. Jason, I think the, when you and I have spoken in podcasts past, uh, you have stressed that whatever the most recent year is in some cases, was the year of school choice. And uh, do we expect to see that again in 2017? What does the momentum look like for states and possibly the feds getting out of the way of school choice? Yes. Yeah, so 2011 was the year that the Wall Street Journal called the year of school choice. And uh, in 2015, I said it was the year of educational choice because they, they were uh, a number of states that were looking at education savings accounts which unlike vouchers where you can use the money just at another private school with an ESA, it's actually a private bank account and you can use that funding either at uh, a private school or you could also use it for tutors, textbook, homeschool curricula, all sorts of other things. So it's a much broader view of education. Uh, we've got five states now that have ESAs and 2017 I don't know that it will top 2015 in terms of, I think there was about 20 states that that year adopted new or expanded educational choice programs. 
I don't think we will top that this year, but I think we will make a lot of progress. There are a whole bunch of states that are looking at ESAs or scholarship tax credit programs right now. Uh, I anticipate movement in a, a number of them, particularly in Arkansas, New Hampshire, uh, Texas, Indiana, uh, Wisconsin, just off the top of my head. Uh, and there are a few states, including uh, Missouri and Arkansas, that are looking at an idea that we at Cato proposed last year, which is combining the tax credit program with the ESA. So what that means is there would be a tax credit for donors to scholarship organizations that would fund the education savings accounts. That makes them more resistant to constitutional challenge. It also means that you're using private dollars, so it's less likely to be uh, overregulated. Yeah, so there's clearly a lot of momentum. I don't know that we're going to see it all translated into 2017, but you see these court cases where in states you're you're sort of moving away these legal impediments, and you do, even though we're we're very concerned about the federal government trying to all at once dictate that everybody's going to have school choice. And of course, federal rules and regulation are likely to follow that. But the fact that you have somebody nominated to be Secretary of Education who's clearly all about school choice and a lot of it as private school choice, all these things suggest that in maybe the next year, two years, three years, four years, we're going to see a lot of progress. What seems to be now developing as the main argument against this is that, well, that's just not fair because a private school could discriminate against students. This was a big part of Betsy DeVos's confirmation hearing where Democrats were saying, well, the fact of the matter is if you have school choice, the schools that you may choose are not obligated to follow the dictates of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which was sort of lauded as this perfect piece of legislation, which has actually in many cases made public schools just what they call lawyer's playground, where, where parents school, sue school districts and everything plays out in court. It's very adversarial. But the fact of the matter is, this is something we need to address head on, which is choice is fundamentally different from being assigned to a public school. We've had to erect kind of top-down, bureaucratic, highly contentious laws to try and make public schools work with everyone because if you're a, a family and you are assigned to a school based on your home address, you personally don't have any power. You need some higher level of government to try and get you what you need. Choice fundamentally changes the power structure, where now schools have to respond directly to you as the parent because you control the funding that goes with the child. Which is implicitly something wealthy parents have always had. That's right. They Well, not only have they had the power to buy a house in a better district, but they're the ones who are able to afford uh, paying a doctor to sometimes give their child a diagnosis that enables them to access something through IDEA, whereas low-income people don't have that ability. I mean, the current system we think of, or many people think of, as being totally flat, everybody is equal, but that is just light years from the truth. The truth is, Wealthier people are much better able to game the system and simply to buy homes in the districts that have the better schools. So, and, and the irony of this is when you listen to the DeVos hearing, it sounded like a lot of senators wanted to attack the McKay Scholarship Program, which is specifically designed, this is in Florida, specifically designed for kids with disabilities, that the people who use it show that they really love it and it enables them to get access to the schooling that they want. Now, there's more money attached to the student because they have a disability, 
But they're not people going around, certainly in any great number, saying, oh, we hate the McKay scholarship, which we've used because we don't get these legal requirements for the schools we choose. It's the choosing that gives us the power so we don't need some sort of bureaucratic dictate to get us what we need for our child. Jason Bedrick is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Neil McCluskey directs Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.